This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. My first guests have joined me in the studio to talk about Joan, the latest work by independent company The Rabble. I'm joined by co-creator of the show, Kate Davis, and actor Louisa Hastings-Edge. Welcome to you both. Thank you. So... Kate, let's start with you and to tell us a little bit about The Rabble as a company. And I want to preface this with uh, an anecdote. When I was over in Perth earlier in the year, uh, I was over there for the Perth Festival, but I caught up with a few local Perth theatre makers. And one of the comments they made was, yeah, we, we really like... Melbourne Independent Theatre, it's so feminist and it's so overtly feminist. Here in Perth, if there's a feminist aspect to a work, it's usually a subtext, but in Melbourne, it's the text. So I wanted to raise that because The Rabble is, I would identify as an overtly feminist theatre company who interrogate work from a feminist perspective. Why do you think Melbourne is, is home to a company like The Rabble? What is it about the conditions in Melbourne? that have created the rabble as a company? I don't, I don't know whether it's actually about um, condition or environment. I guess uh, for us it just is. <laughs> it's the way we make work. It's where it comes from. Um, but for us, I guess, we started off uh, making work early 2006 and so we've been making work, Emma and myself, for a long time. And... I think the majority of that early on was in the dark. So no one was really watching what we were making um, or really cared what we were making. Um, so I guess in a way we uh, developed our work um, together and over the time um, it, it, we developed this methodology and uh, devising process and, um, and then eventually I guess through maybe Orlando was kind of a bit of a turning point um, when people started to notice our work, started kind of going, wow, okay, you're, uh, this is the feminist theatre makers. Um, and, but really it, it's just been the way we are and, and who we are. It's, yeah, I don't know whether it's about Melbourne itself. That's an interesting comment, though. Yeah. Louisa, from your perspective as an actor, is there... Yes, I can talk about this. Yeah. yeah the I feel like Melbourne's like a hot pot for, um, you know, interdisciplinary sort of... Um, deconstructed, not so narrative, traditional sort of forms of theatre. I think it's a really sophisticated independent theatre scene that we've we've got here. So it makes sense that there's companies talking to um, concepts and thoughts um, in a in a specific way. Um, but yeah, I, I find this. I find that as well. But maybe that's the people that I work with. <laughs> and because often independent theatre makers, it's like independent musicians. If, if you're an indi- if you're an indie band, you go and see other indie bands. And I think indie theatre makers, to a degree, you're not. It's not the only audience who are coming to your shows. But particularly in the early days of independent theatre companies, when you're starting out as a company, you're making work for yourself, mm. and you're making work that <clears throat> reflects your concerns and your peers' concerns, and you're having a dialogue Absolutely. with other independent theatre makers and and your colleagues and friends and slowly that audience grows. So it makes sense that there is a a trend within Melbourne, within that kind of um, rigorous, challenging independent theatre sector and the work that is made that concerns around feminism and identity and so forth are being interrogated, which 
makes Joan a very kind of logical work for the rabble to make. This is an interrogation of what the myth and the history of a feminist icon mm-hmm. in uh, Joan of Arc. Mm. No, it felt like a absolutely a natural progression for us, but also um, personally really always been very intrigued by her as a kind of figure um so it made sense for us to look into or investigate her um but also the many representations of her and that's what i find so fascinating is um the the maid the soldier the you know the icon the martyr the saint all of these kind of representations of joan and really there's only kind of one piece of information that actually exists about her that's real, the trial. Um, And so there's all these depictions of her. So it felt really exciting to kind of delve into this figure and see what's there and how and kind of imagine and channel her in some way and honour her at the same time, if that makes any sense. Louisa, how do you... How does one embody a facet of a character about who we know so little... Hmm. Um, well, I, I think we're playing with... I think Emma and Kate are playing with um, the, the remnants of the myth, the leftovers, the interpretations, um, the boxes, you know, that Joan gets put in. And, and um, so I guess to answer the question, it's, it's, um, it's fun to play sort of, in a way, fragments and um, little pinpricks of... Um, essential Joan, but then that butting up against, as you say, the independent theatre scene in Melbourne being and the rabble and the kind of contemporary feminist take on those little tiny grabs of Joan. Um, so it's it's fun, and there's a there's um it's it's dark, but as with the rabble stuff, I think there's always a little edge of. Um, Humor. I don't know if humor is the right word, but there's always an edge of not ludicrous. It's like a like a dark comedy edge to it in some some senses of it, where the contemporary comes in and meets the meets the kind of yeah the the horror of the reality of it. Yeah. Which now, now horror is a good word to use for for Joan of Arc. We're talking about somebody who was a national hero, a military mm. leader who at, I think what at eighteen she led France to victory in the Hundred Year War, allegedly. Uh, through divine inspiration and hearing the voice of God telling her what to do. and Was the we- voice of her saints. Okay. Apparently. Yeah. Yeah, so she never spoke... I mean, she spoke about God, but she was directly, according to her, speaking through or via um, two um, saints. That's okay. what... Thank you. <laughs> just so you know. Good, good. good. Like, this is one of the things that... My knowledge of Joan of Arc is this patchwork fragment yeah. of... of uh, uh, characters in novels and and references in yeah. films and uh, but the fact that then essentially the political stakes turned and Joan went from being uh, a heroine to being a villain and is tried and executed and burnt at the stake. Mm, I know. It, it's horrific. A, it's a terrifying kind of arc in such a short space of time and to realise that she's th- this heroic figure has then become what a political pawn. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, for me, the the, the horror is actually just the human um, aspect of it and imagining a 19-year-old girl on the stake and being literally burnt. And I think, um, for me, that's the horror and also um, 
what makes me kind of want to make the work and also reflect um, in, con- to the contemporary, I guess, and what is still continually happening, um, both metaphorically and um, literally happening to women around the world. Um, so I, I just can't get that out of my head why I'm making this, is this, this body, this human body and what we do to people, <laughs> it's just, and women especially. Mm, but I think the porn that you said, that, you know, she was useful at a very particular point and then she became not useful. And then what do you do with useless women? Well, you get rid of them. <laughs> but it's surprising that they never, yeah, and they never, the French never came for her. Like that was yeah. it. It was just, yeah, that's it. And let her burn. Mm. It's the, in some ways it's it's the the extension of the get thee to a nunnery. Yeah. It's kind of remove mm-hmm. this woman from out mm-hmm. from from influence or sight. Mm-hmm. Just in in the, the Middle Ages, yes, you would you might send your wife to a nunnery or in this instance uh, you would allow her to be to be burnt at the stake. And, and also I think that like the tides were turning in terms of how how many victories they were, you know, winning. And I think once that started falling apart you know, there was someone else to believe in and it was like, okay, let's, this is embarrassing now, let's, let's move on. Yeah. So, Kate, in creating Joan, you've mentioned the court transcripts, which are a historical document that exists. Are we, are audiences then going to see some kind of semi-verbatim <laughs> reenactment of the trial filtered through a theatrical lens? No, no, that's not what they're going to see. Um, I guess um, without kind of giving too much away, we're really looking at the representation so the 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 presence of the trial is in the piece um uh but in quite a kind of abstract way um we are using a lot of av in regards to um uh displaying the trial um and using inspiration from surrealist films and black and white um silent films as a kind of a way of um the the kind of mute um, figure or woman um, and we were really excited at the beginning when we came across the film um, The Passion of Joan of Arc and that was a big inspiration um, so we're kind of continuing uh, with AV um, through the piece but really we've got four women in the cast that all play Joan and they all are like Louisa said fragments of Joan or representations of her and they kind of replace each other through the piece um, and we kind of move from silence to voice. Um, so it's really about uh, coming into speaking, if that makes any sense. Mm. Talk to us then about being Joan as part of a chorus of Jones, essentially. Mm. It's like we're all experiencing the same thing, but we don't sort of interact with each other. So it's sort of... There's points where we do, but it's quite a solo and pure little journey. Um, the speaking side of it is really interesting and we sort of, you know, that um, as we start doing more runs will become uh, more of a clearer journey, I suppose, because we spent a lot of the time making the physical aspect of it. So, yeah, physically, and there's also been some physical challenges, like, you know, real physical challenges with this. Such as? Oh, I won't give it away, Richard. Okay. Um, no, just just we have a, a repetitive movement that we do that is, um, you know, gives the body a sense of, I suppose, 
something that Joan would have been reaching for and it's um, a very kind of visceral sense for the actor that I hope, obviously, that's why it's there because the audience will go, oh. Um, but so, yes, the journey of it feels quite solo and pure um, and I think as we start getting runs in, it will be really interesting to see how text manifests out of that sort of very deep um, physical and imagistic world that we're creating. And with the camera, it's been really interesting as well, working in full theatre space and then right down to a minute mm. eye, um, which I haven't, I haven't personally done on stage before. So that's been, really, that's been really interesting. Is it challenging, Kate, to manage the transition then between that uh, rich visual imagery uh, and then the, the live AV, for example, to, to ensure that one, that the transitions are smooth, that one doesn't kind of jar or, or overrule the other? Yeah, completely, and especially in a devised process as well um, because things are literally changing every kind of, you know, few hours, like a whole scene could shift and then the AV has to shift with that. We have Martin Coots on as AV designer, um, so he, he's in the room kind of feeding in, so constantly both things are shifting um, until the balance is right and that is it's really difficult in a device process um, but we're getting we're getting closer and it's been fantastic to actually have uh, an AV designer in the room um, and also we're in theatre works as well we should yeah, say which that has been amazing so we're creating actually. the show within in the space, space yeah. yeah we've been there for just over two weeks which you know, again, in this kind of process of making work has been incredible and we really couldn't have done a lot of the work we've done without it. Absolutely not. For people who aren't part of the theatre world, what does what is a devised process? What does it mean and how does it differ to a, a traditional, more script-based piece of theatre? Well, we don't start with a script at all. Um, we basically start through long-form improvisation um, and then we basically build the work on the floor with the performers. Um, so through improvisation, kind of um, finding... Uh, we might feed in certain aspects of Joan's story or... Um, situations but really it's from the improvisation that we start building the world and then for there the, then the structure kind of becomes clear to us and Emma and I kind of narrow it down um, and we managed to kind of find the structural form of Joan quite early which was great which meant that we could kind of um, we just got we got to it faster, if that makes any sense. Yeah, but there was a strong structure there already. Yeah, so yeah. we could fill in and and now we're in the process of still just kind of tightening certain um, scenes within that structure, but the structure when we got it felt like super strong and that was really great, but it is all on the floor. So you never know going into a project what's going to happen and that's what's kind of exciting about it too. The production we're discussing is Joan by The Rabble, which is on at Theatre Works in Ackland Street, St Kilda, from the 20th to the 30th of April, Wednesdays to Saturdays at 7.30pm, Sundays at 5pm. Tickets are $38.30 and 30 concession. Uh, it runs for 80 minutes without an interval, and you can book at theatreworks.org.au. Just before we wrap up, uh, Louisa, you're one of the performers. Uh, I think we should quickly acknowledge the rest of the cast. Yes, we have beautiful Nikki Shields, the young, youthful... 
Emily Millage and the the I won't say old hat, but she's been working with the rebels since I don't know when. When did Dana since the beginning, Dana Milton. So it's amazing working with Dana. She she's like really like Emma and Kate's other head. She's got the language of yeah, that. Yeah, so is exactly. she translating for you at times? When they say <laughs> she's going, what, what they, they mean, mean is no, <laughs> no, it's just it's just like those old relationships people have and you can yeah, see it on the floor. They they understand each other. Creative really, shorthand in yeah, the exactly, yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, the Rabble are presenting Joan, as I said, at Theatre Works in St Kilda from the 20th to the 30th of April. Uh, you can book at theatreworks.org.au and find out all those other details you need. Also at theatreworks.org.au. And if you want to know more about The Rabble themselves, you can go to therabble.com.au to get a sense of what other works they may have created have you not encountered their work before. Kate Davis and Louisa Hastings-Edge, thank you both very much for joining us here at Triple R. Thanks. Thanks. When the theatre's on, you want to dim those lights, settle into your seat and slip into a story that could transform your awareness of Australian history, which is certainly my experience of the play Corin Dirk, which has had a number of iterations and incarnations, including recently the La Mama version of Corin Dirk, Corin Dirk was performed on country up near Hillsville. Before I first saw the play, to my shame, I had not heard of Corin Dirk, which was an Aboriginal Kind of mission out near Hillsville, which became a self-sufficient farm and was a, kind of then it's that classic, it's like you see avarice come into play and surrounding farmers going, hold on a minute, why are the blackfellas making uh, a living on the <laughs> land there when we're not, obviously we need to take the land from them. Uh, it's such a rich and complex and sad but beautiful story and it's had a number of theatrical incarnations as a verbatim piece of theatre but also as a more dramatised version. Uh, joining me in the studio to talk to us about Corin Dirk, the, a co-production between Ilbidri Theatre Company and Belvoir. Rachel Mazza, hello. Hello, Richard. Nice and to catch up with you. Everyone else out there, always good, always good. <laughs> so you've had a long involvement with this production. Right, from the very start, from the very early, uh, early uh, 2011, we started the conversation with an ARC linkage grant between the Melbourne University, numerous, numerous partners, but most significantly La Mama Theatre. And that's the version that has continued to be quite consistently uh, presented and, as you say, more recently, the on-country performance um, that is 100% strictly verbatim drawn from the 1881 inquiry, which is in itself uh, a a profound window into the voices of both black fellas and white fellas in that time, which is very unique. There's a, it's very rare that you hear those voices. And, and then, of course, so then you're able to hear a direct account of what was really going on. It's kind of news at its best <laughs> a little some hundred years later, but hey. <laughs> and then there's this version of Corin Dirk, which is slightly more dramatised and less verbatim. So, basically, we had toured the Strictly Verbatim La Mama collaboration production uh, for some time, for several years, and then were approached by Belvoir, who obviously acknowledged what an extraordinary story it was of national significance and would we consider uh, developing the work into a more fully dramatised standalone piece of theatre as opposed to um, the verbatim which often is accompanied with talks and Q&As and, and, you know, the the information, the contextualisation happens outside the theatre piece. So this was about how do you bring that all into a standalone theatre piece? 
uh, and make it in, into an extraordinary piece of theatre. Uh, and Belvoir partnered on that production, Isaac Drandich as director, and uh, did an extraordinary uh, season uh, at Belvoir Street Theatre with that production. And then, um, and we uh, now have had an opportunity uh, primarily with an all-new team New director Eva Grace Mullaly, um, a stunning, upcoming, and and pa- dynamic director, will be directing this new version of Corinderk. Uh, a new cast, uh, led by the amazing, uh, stunning, and you know we all infamous Trevor Jamison. <laughs> Uh, and we have returning to the cast Matthew Cooper from the original cast and new upcoming uh, actor Ebony Maguire and Jesse Butler. So a fantastic kick-ass cast. And it became evident to me that, as with all theatre, is to allow the work to continue to grow and respond to this new team. So it was... I, I gave them... The provocation was, you know, like, here's... Here's the script. Um, bring the writers back into the room. Here's your opportunity to tweak and twiddle. And um, one of the things that uh, I feel was um, uh, agreed in, in that kind of new, in this new collaboration was uh, looking at bringing a lot of the humour back in. Um, so I, I th- we've got this dynamic, fast pace, uh, and very funny. Corinderk that's about to uh, go on tour next week. <laughs> and it's a big tour, and I'll come to those uh, the tour dates shortly, but it, if you listen to Triple uh, R streaming uh, online, for example, and you're living uh, out in regional Victoria and hearing about these shows, going, oh, I wish they'd come near me. Well, Corinderk is, because, it, it, look, it's going to... Uh, starting at, in Melbourne at the National Theatre, but then we've got Ballarat, Nunawading, Warrnambool, Horsham, Bendigo, Wodonga, Shepparton, Sale, Traralgon, South Morang, Pakenham, Altona, Frankston, Monash out in Clayton, Mooney Ponds, Footscray, Kyneton and Geelong. So it's... And that's just Victoria. And then there's other dates interstate, which I'll mention in a moment. But I guess, Rachel, as Artistic Director of Ilbidria... You, I'm sure, were aware of the history and the significance of Corin Dirk. Um, no, it no. was new to you as well. No, no, it wasn't until uh, the I was approached by Jordano Nani, who was uh, had come across this this in, this inquiry it, as part of his research for something else. He'd kind of kept it in the back of his mind and realised. Holy dooly, how come people don't know about this story? So he then approached um, Ilbidri uh, um, and La Mama about he, you know. So you know, all credit to uh, Giordano out there, out there in terms of seeing uh, the, the, the 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 potential. potential. And, yeah, yeah. So because I mean, it's a fascinating story. The notion of the surviving members of the Kulin clans, kind of uh, uprooted from their own land and moved to the Corinderk station up near Healesville. And also the the guy who was Abri- protector for Aboriginals at the time, John Green, was was uh, part of his job was going around visiting all the missions and it became very evident to him that there was a big demand for a place that people could manage and self-determine. And there was a lot of people who weren't, uh, you know, after talking to many Aboriginal people around the state. So actually there's about 47 different mobs who all ended up uh, calling Corinderk home, so it's it's on Coolan country, and there's the you know the Coolan tribe that were 
a good a good proportion of those populations, but but actually it's people from all over oh, Victoria. Yeah. Wow, even a couple of Queenslanders, I think. Yeah. And that notion of self determination is so significant. Uh, the fact that in 1863 there was this uh, argument to say no give blackfellas a chance to to run their own lives free of white interference uh and and this community grew and transformed and it became so significant and was hugely successful um i mean and and when you uh, hearing you say it just then you know like you know this idea of being self-determined is not rocket science i mean it's common sense it's every human's Every human's right to be self-determined in, in your choice of career, in your educational opportunities, in where you want to live. You know, that's, that's what self-determination is. It's not, it's, not, it's not anything you're not, not familiar with yourself. So um, it, it, it stands alone as an extraordinary example of the, this, the capacity of when Aboriginal people are able to be self-determined and given the, given the, the, um, the space to be self-determined, um, how successful they can be. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it's a lesson to us all, <laughs> a reminder then, to us all. And then, as I said earlier, the, the fact that white envy is then what closes Corin Dirk down, uh, the, the envy of white farmers who looked at that land and went, that land is fertile and working and we want it. How yeah. do we get rid of the, the blackfellas who are there? How do we take it over for ourselves? Yeah, and yet there's also the, the other white guys who were the allies, the John Greens, the Anne Bonds, who saw common sense, decency and humanity as a fundamental human, you know, value within themselves and saw the, the, the kind of injustice that was happening at the time and stood by... Their, their Aboriginal, you know, friends and brothers in, in terms of uh, supporting that community. So uh, once again, um, for me, the Corinderk was such an extraordinary antidote to the John Howard Black Arm Band uh, attitude of why should I apologise in, re- in response to the Stolen Generation policy? Why should, I res- why should we, we apologise for policies that were appropriate for the time and his assumption that there that certain policies and certain behaviors and certain treatment of other peoples was acceptable because of the time that certain values from another time are somehow appropriate and yet in face of that ridiculous comment are the john greens and Anne bonds who in that very you know going right back to that early 1886 no, 1870s were able to see common sense and that's what we're talking about common sense here yeah one of the things that amazes me about the story of Corin Dirk is, and particularly having uh, driven out to Healesville last year, thinking about William Barrack, the the leader of the Wurundjeri Willem clan, walking from Corin Dirk, Healesville, into Melbourne to Parliament to deliver a petition, doing it not once, but do, doing several that times. several times. That's yeah. Like, if you drive that way today, it's still a fair drive. And so the idea of doing that on foot uh, is it's in in itself is just a remarkable example of, of human spirit, resilience and determination. And, and that's just one the, example. And this is also their second language. William Barrick remembers seeing a f- the first white people when he was 13. 
He has a memory of the first whitefellas arriving. Like this is this whole culture is an adopted second culture, and yet their capacity to be and their strategic sophistication to be able to master that language and their ways and their laws to then turn it around to to basically uh, to be empowered by these. Uh, these laws and yeah as you say to be able to put in a petition and, and know who to send that petition to and de- I'm going to we're going to de- deliver it personally yeah it's a fascinating story and it's one that I think uh, all Victorians should know so I'm oh the other thing I'm really super proud of is that it's on the Victorian curriculum for drama and theatre. So it's this is one of those stories that must, as you started off this interview, you know, that the fact that people don't know this story is, is unbelievable because it is really a quite an, a, an incredible story. So it's going to be on the v, on the VCE for drama and theatre um, and it's also uh, in the history section. The his, history of Corandirk is in the um, uh, Victorian curriculum for year nines and tens. Fantastic. So, yeah, get all, get all, bring all your kids along. Corin Dirk is an Ilbidri Theatre Company and Belvoir co-production uh, and it's great to see uh, a Melbourne company and a Sydney company collaborating and touring this work. Uh, I want to more like that rather than just all these great shows that sit in one city and are never seen anywhere else. Corin mm. Dirk is touring nationally from uh, the 18th of April to the 7th of July. The first performance is at the National Theatre St Kilda on Tuesday the 18th of April and then it goes on from the 20th of April uh, up to it's on at Her Majesty's Theatre in Ballarat from the 21st and the 22nd of April. Uh, it's the, the White Horse Performing Arts Centre in Ngunnawadding. Those performances are sold out. And then it goes on from the 27th of April, it's down to Warrnambool. The 29th of April, it's up in Horsham. The 2nd of May, it's at the Alumbra Theatre in Bendigo and more. I'm not going to run through the full list of dates and details. You can find those if you go to... He says, looking for his notes, ilbidgery.com.au. Uh, you can find the full tour details there. If you don't know how to spell ilbidgery, I-L-B-I-J-E-R-R-I, ilbidgery.com.au, and you'll find the full tour dates. If you're listening to this conversation right now from Interstate, for example, it's coming to you on the 14th to the 15th of June at the Canberra Theatre Centre. Then it goes on through New South Wales to places like Orange, Bathurst and Parramatta. Queensland, it's on into Woomba and even going up to Darwin uh, on the 7th of July, the tour culminates in the Northern Territory at the Darwin Entertainment Centre. (laughs) Rachel, it's a huge tour. It's massive because it's been such an extraordinarily important story, and there are parallel stories all over all over the world. Actually, a similar inquiries happened around the world. So we're yet to do the international tour. Obviously, give it time. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel Mather, a pleasure chatting to you as always. A joy as always. Melbourne International Comedy Festival is on. There is lots to see, uh, and of course, every year you will go and see a favourite comedian who you know and love. Uh, But what I also recommend every year is that you go and see somebody you've never heard of before and never seen before so that you're getting kind of a a range of comedy. One of the shows that I saw earlier in the festival and which remains one of my highlights is a show called Maestro by uh, UK comedian Kieran Hodgson, who joins us in the studio now. Kieran, good morning. Good morning to you. So I went into this obviously not knowing anything about you really because this is your first time in Why Melbourne. Why would you? <laughs> um, uh, and I also was thinking, is this something to do with classical music? Classical music and comedy seems like an odd pairing. 
Yeah, I think comedy goes out of its way to to sort of please everyone, or at least I sort of think it should. Uh, whereas classical music has a reputation of um, shutting the door to uh, most people, I think. Um, and so it was a nice challenge to to try and yeah combine the two approaches really, and to to make something about classical music that that anyone could see that had no prior knowledge, prior knowledge required. Now, I, I right from the start of the show, I started laughing, and I don't want to tell the listeners why because I think there are some surprises that should be should there's, be there's maintained. Few, yeah. yeah, but one of the in terms of the the structure of the show, you're talking about. Uh, trying to write a symphony yes. and the 14 year struggle. Conceit, yes. Yeah. Uh, how much of this is true and how much of it is embellished? Um, it's, it, the idea of um, a ludicrous, long standing quest to uh, write my name into the history books by writing a symphony is, is true. Uh, it's something that as a sort of very pretentious teenager I thought I would I would inevitably achieve uh, still haven't done I must confess but um, I thought that uh, you know as soon as I went into music lessons in year seven and uh, they gave us that composing software on the computer and I sort of monkey around with a few things and wrote a little stupid piece of music and, and the teacher said that it was alright I thought well I must now be a composer and I can write a symphony. So yeah I've been trying off and on to uh, to finish that um, for well over a decade now and uh, the the ludicrousness of this quest uh, suggested itself to me as, a, as a, a nice topic for a comedy show. Now you're best known over in the UK I understand as a character Comedian, yes. So my my whole shtick is that you, you will very you won't see an awful lot of Kieran Hodgson while you're watching the show because he's quite a boring person. Um, and so I I switch between various characters who populate the the narrative, as it were. So it's it's a nice way of um, telling a snor- uh, telling a story, but also sneaking in lots of stupid voices that I do. Why do characters as opposed to is this a sign? I'm going to put my psychologist's hat on for oh, a moment. Yeah, not, not that I have one. It, go for but, it. I'm, uh, I'm ready. I, <laughs> Is this a way of deflecting attention away from yourself, for example? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, When I started doing um, comedy, it was in sketches, and there there came conversations with the people I was doing sketches with about, you know, oh, would you ever give stand-up a go? Would you give it a try? And uh, quite a few of my friends did. And it was always something I I was absolutely terrified of, I think because of the idea of standing in front of an audience and... and, um, grabbing that microphone saying, hello, I'm, I'm Kieran Hodgson. And, uh, hey. And I just knew that I would have nothing really to say because this, a lot of the stand-ups I admired uh, came from um, positions where they were, they were adding a new voice. You know, they had, they had had an experience or a perspective on life that was um, often one filled with struggle or, or one that was different from the mainstream. I'm so mainstream. Or, uh, you know, I, I had a very comfortable, very easy childhood, you know, loving family, wanted for nothing. And I, I thought, you know, how dare I essentially <laughs> presume to stand on stage and try and be funny when I've had such a nice life. So the characters were, were a way of going on stage and being funny, but... Um, but hiding the boring man, Kieran Hodgson, from from public gaze. The notion of describing yourself as boring and yet wanting to be an entertainer is a fascinating <laughs> dichotomy. Kind of like, the, why, if you consider yourself to be a boring person, why would you want to get up on stage to begin with? Well, that's, I mean, okay, now we're going a bit deeper here, aren't we? Um, I don't know, I suppose... I always thought that um, things that I could imagine would be, would be funny... 
but that uh, that I myself was quite was quite bland. Um, but yeah, I mean, you you pointed out uh, an inherent contradiction in that uh, in that point of view. So thanks, you destroyed my, <laughs> my my whole sort of psychological makeup there. Oh, well, we can now, now gently rebuild three it. minutes. That's pretty good. <laughs> Let's now gently rebuild it. So, in terms of constructing a show like Maestro, what was mm. the starting point? The starting point was um, the previous two shows I'd done, really, which were equally semi-autobiographical um, storytelling shows filled with characters, and I was looking for a, another story to tell. Um, and uh, this one suggested itself, I think, because I, w- I was always... Uh, I like to start uh, a show in terms of the idea from something that I care about, and I care an awful lot about classical music, and um, so a hobby is a good thing to start with, and then a hobby that, that has some sort of emotional element to it. So the last show that I did was all about cycling, and it was about the sense of betrayal that I felt when Lance Armstrong turned out to be not quite so great as he'd uh, said he was. And the emotional perspective with this classical music show was um, trying to fall in love or trying to find love. And so I, I thought that there would, be, uh, there would be a good combination together. Well, certainly love and the struggles to, to find it and accept it mm-hmm. are, are a universal theme. Uh, the struggle to write classical music and write a symphony is not. Um, yeah, well, so one piggy, piggybacks on the other. And that's the that's the thing. Like if you're if you're going into it and you don't know your Brahms from your Bruckner, um, at least you'll know what it feels like to be rejected. Uh, in in love. well, maybe you won't, but I see most people. I think most, most people, people have, have been through that, really, yeah. particularly um, as a teenager. And so yeah, it's it's a matter of finding those those universal experiences and then adding your own personal flavour to them. And, and my personal flavour is. Uh, playing the violin and, and trying to write something in sonata form. And introducing the audience along the way to uh, uh, Gustav Mahler. Yes. So he's a sort of you know, totemic figure in the show, someone that I'm looking up to and trying to emulate. And um, they, there comes a realisation fairly late on the show that uh, um, it's almost pointless to try and emulate someone like that and, and that maybe... Um, Someone like Gustav Mahler is, uh, you know, has a great genius, but maybe was as much afflicted by that genius as uh, as blessed by it. And that um, it's, you know, I might not be capable, perhaps, of writing a great symphonic masterpiece, but that maybe I can find it easier to be happy, given that that's the case. And I, one of the things that I really enjoyed about the show was the the we get you playing a character who is played by another kind of character. Yeah, well, so it all comes down to the silly voices and and trying to make the audience laugh. And uh, Gustav Mahler was always going to appear as a character in the show, but then the question is, well, how do you how do you do this dead dude from Austria uh, in a way that people are going to find funny? Uh, no one knows what he sounds like, and uh, even if you did know what it sounded like, you, you might not find it funny. So I came up with this little trick of um, Mahler is uh, is played in inverted commas, throughout the show by different actors. So I just do an impression of the actors. Um, and so there's, there's a bit where he turns up as Christoph Waltz, there's a bit where he turns up as David Tennant. Um, and that was a, a sneaky way of, of um, dramatising Marla without uh, making everyone fall asleep. And I think it works really well, because I was sitting there going, oh my God, I know this person, who are oh, the names on the tip of my tongue, and then you'll tell us who, who the, the, the character is. <laughs> yeah, so. always, always tell people who you're doing an impression of, otherwise it's, uh, yeah, you, you run a lot of risks there. How do you make people laugh? Oh God. Um, I've always tried to make people laugh with 
a funny voice and a funny facial expression and a funny turn of phrase. I'm not much of a joke writer, not much of a... And, and the, the jokes that I do write are, are, are really tortured and involve a lot of prior knowledge. Um, so I, I'm not sure... I, there's a big question that comedians will often have over a few uh, pots, not schooners, late into the night. Um, <laughs> Bonus point know, for paying attention to the last thing, you? And well, I was, I was very... Uh, so I was sort of freaked out, but there was another guy called Keir, and I thought, am I, am I meant to be in there? Um, the, the conversation we have is, you know, whether being funny is something that you can be taught or whether it's something that's innate, that's inherent, you know, it's a sort of nature-nurture uh, debate, really. I'm not sure where I kind of come down. I think I, from a very young age, watched a lot of comedy, was was drawn to it, and, and perhaps in so doing um, absorbed all the mannerisms and the, the timing that other funny people had, and so was able to kind of ape them and reproduce them. Now, I'm not sure whether that's something that you could... If, you, if you'd never watched comedy in your life, uh, and you were age sort of 25 and you went to see a comedian and then kind of parroted back that style, I'm not sure if that would, if that would be funny in the same way. Who knows? So I'm interested in terms of the way you construct and work material, because mm. if, as you say, your focus as a comedian is not joke writing, but mm. it's, uh, it's uh, a humorous line delivered in a humorous way, yeah. what, do you then sit there talking to yourself, trying out different funny voices Absolutely. and different po- kind of postures when you're working on a, on a script for yeah, a show? You, you've nailed it. Um, so with with this um, show like Maestro, which has a, a big structure, I, you know, I spent several months plotting out what would happen when and, and getting a vague idea of who the characters should be and how uh, an audience might um, relate to them and, and what kind of emotional significance they would have, all that sort of fairly um, serious stuff. But then when it comes to writing the script, you sit down in front of your computer and then you write the name of the character, colon, and they're like, right, what are they going to say? And a lot of the time it is walking around the room with, with that silly voice on and trying to access this strange bit of your brain that's spontaneous and that puts things together. And, and it's, very, it's a very strange thing because most of the time you can't let go, or at least I can't let go, but occasionally I will let go for 30 seconds and something will burst out and it'll make me giggle and I'll write it down. And through that very slow and laborious process, you get a script. And then you have to put it in front of the audience and they have their own opinions. And hope that they giggle or more. Exactly. But, uh, uh, the show we're discussing is Kieran Hodgson's Melbourne Comedy Festival debut. It's a show called Maestro, which, as I quipped on the show last week, uh, you may think that comedy and classical music don't go together, but this one goes together like cat gut and rosin. Um, <laughs> it's, I, I came out kind of electric and, and bubbling with joy, I have oh, to lovely. say so it really worked this is a comedy show that it could have been written for me uh, is the way it felt the so thing the the thing that really um i i love when when people have enjoyed the show quite a few people have said that they left the show and then they got their phones out and um googled or spotify searched marla and something they never heard of but they thought oh well he's he's banged on about it for an hour i'll give it a go and uh, that that makes it all worthwhile i have a sort of yeah, music education uh imperative that I'm trying to follow. Infecting the world with your love of a dead Austrian composer. Exactly. How yeah. relevant, how, more, how much more relevant you are in 2017 with all the stuff that's going on. Yeah. Kieran Hodgson's Maestro is on at the Melbourne Town Hall until the 23rd of April. Uh, no shows on Mondays. Um, 8.30pm Tuesdays to Saturdays and what, an hour earlier on Sundays? On Sundays, yes. Yeah. Although I'm, I'm catching an early flight on the final Sunday so be there at 5 o'clock for a tea time special. Oh, very nice. Um, 
Tickets are 2650 to 3350. You can book at comedyfestival.com.au or phone 1300 660 or you can turn up at the ticket office uh, at Melbourne Town Hall, which is on Collins Street, and just get yourself some tickets then and there. Kieran, before you go, uh, anybody you've seen at the festival you want to give a shout-out to or plug or recommend? Because there are so many shows that it's impossible to cover them all. There so. are. I'm, I'm going to be very patriotic and plug some Brits. Um, I think everyone should go and see uh, Richard Gadd and Josie Long. And then uh, there's a great mixed-bill British show called New Order uh, with some... Uh, admittedly some friends of mine but they're very funny so uh, go and see that at the Victoria Hotel Great, well uh, I haven't seen Josie yet but looking forward to it because I always enjoy her comedy, her mix of kind of politics and whimsy and, and, and joy oh, She's great and, and also she is someone who is who she is in real life on stage and, uh, I follow it, her on Twitter and it's there's kind of a, fascinating yeah, there's, a, there's a lack of artifice there which is, is absolutely um, endearing and uh, I wish I could have <laughs> <laughs> and Richard Gadd who you've mentioned uh, with his show Monkey See Monkey Do was on this pr- very program last week it's another of my absolute favourite shows in the festival I, I, I adore it and mm. I'm recommending it to everybody but so New Order is new to me I will add that to the list yeah go for it four, four new British comics uh, making their way uh, in the Southern Hemisphere excellent I look forward to checking it out uh, Kieran Hodgson's Maestro, as I said, on at Melbourne Town Hall until the 23rd of April. Kieran, thanks for coming in. Love to speak to you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.